Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Europe Alex podcast for our first episode of 2023. We're very excited to be back, and welcome to Alistair and Javid. Hello there. Hello there. Doing well. How about you? Yeah, very, very good. I'm excited to discuss politics um, with you both. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to recording our first uh, episode of the new year, kind of hitting a stride, as it were. And um, Alistair, what what are we going to focus on this time around? Well, in this episode, we're going to reflect back on the most consequential electoral events of 2022 and have a look forward to what 2023 has in store for us all. And we will also bring you some of our favourite recent polling highlights. But first, a little message on how you could support us. EuroFlex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors, despite what some of our Twitter followers say. And everything we do, including this very podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more for all of you. You can support us via our Patreon, where we've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more. You can even get a shout out in our videos or podcast episodes. For this specific episode, we're excited to thank our lovely follower and patron, Joe Fitkovsky. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. Well, well, well. You can also wear us. Europelex also has a merch. At europelex.redbubble.com, you can find all the mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and more we have produced, with more and more designs being added all the time. If you are anything like us, and you don't want to miss out on showing everybody how much of a polling and election nerd you are, check out all our designs on europelex.redbubble.com. And of course, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen to us from. And most importantly, tell people about the podcast. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts on topic we should be covering, or just want to say hi, shoot us an email at podcast at europealex.eu. Europelex is also recruiting. If you are familiar with the nations of either Albania or Moldova, please send us an application on our website at europelex.eu forward slash join hyphen the hyphen team. We are looking for experts in Albania and Moldova. If you would please send us a CV and a short cover letter on your background on these countries and your experience within the politics, that would be most appreciated. So let's finally get to the meat of this episode. And as we said earlier, uh, the first half is going to focus on uh, 2022, which was a huge year for elections uh, around Europe. And um, while obviously as junkies of polls and everything, we like to look ahead, uh, there are lots of events from last year that are still having effects on electoral politics, uh, and that will be reflected in our coverage this year. So I'm going to start with one of the biggest events in electoral politics, which were the various campaigns in France. So obviously, um, as you will all know, the elections came at a time of uh, quite a lot of internal struggles for President Macron. He was uh, going for um, re-election, seeing whether he could be the first president since um, Jacques Chirac to be re-elected by the French electorate. Uh, there was a sense of big unpredictability going into it. You had this 
split between right-wing candidates at one point. People really thought that this extremist Zemmour uh, was going to make it to the runoff. You had a sort of boost for the center-right Republican candidate Pecres as well. You know, even February, sort of a year ago, if you'd have asked people, it was all up in the air. Um, then, you know, you had the spurt of the left, uh, of the left candidate Mélenchon in the race. Uh, that all sort of, we were all enchanted by it, following it um, at various levels. And then it still sort of resulted in the same pairing as last time around. And Macron winning, even though it was a weaker victory than uh, the time before. But I still think that um, in terms of French politics, it was a sea change. You have far right and a new uh, left, you might call it, entrenching themselves in the interest institutions in France um, and basically uh, weakening even more the previous mainstream parties. And then you obviously have Macron, who's now certain pretty much to be a 10-year precedent. Clearly, you know, it was a, a big year for European politics overall, with all leaders of major European countries um, really having to step up to all the various crises, including the war in Ukraine. So that's, you know, shaped our view of Macron um, since then. Um, so I don't know how, how what you guys think of the elections looking back. You know, it's been more than six months now, I believe. Um, how do you remember them and what, what's your take on French politics at the moment for, for 2023? I mean, one thing that certainly strikes me is just how drastically everything has changed since the campaign. As you mentioned, there was a period, there was a point in time where it looked like Pécras might end up either in uh, a second round with Le Pen or Macron. She was looking like the leading candidate within the race and in the end produced a rather, you know, pitiful result um, compared to those two original frontrunners. I also think the elections to the Parliament of the Assemblée Nationale were quite a sea change. Um, they ended up producing a minority for the presidential majority, ironically called, um, that hasn't actually happened for several decades in French politics. I know cohabitation occurred in the early 2000s, but I still believe the party that was cohabiting had a majority within the Assemblée Nationale. Right now, it is a hung parliament. Um, they can't dissolve it for at least a year, or at least a year from the election. So uh, I believe that put us in about May of this year, at least not later. And that itself is causing a lot of issues for the governing majority. They're having to discuss with the Front National, the Assemblée Nation, uh, Rassemblement National. They're having to talk with um, the Republicain. They're having to talk even with the left on various different topics. And it's kind of created a sense of off-kiltedness of almost chaos within kind of French parliamentary politics that has not been seen for a long, long time. For me, I believe the biggest problem for Macron uh, is the parliament. Uh, I mean, he doesn't have the majority. He tried to do something about it, like he tried to make an alliance with the Republicans, but it didn't work very well. In addition, the Republicans, like what is the biggest problem in France, I believe, right now, is that apart from the governing centrist coalition, all other political parties, both on the left and right, are led by, uh, in some way like a relatively radicalized extreme politicians. Even the Republicans elected themselves a new leader who has pretty like uh, right-wing views uh, in some ways. His name is like Eric Ciotti, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he replaced Valérie Pécresse. 
And he's also like, to be honest, in a way, his views are not that far from, in some ways, to Le Pen, in some ways, even Zemmour. So these trends are a bit problematic in French politics right now because people are more and more dissatisfied with the centrist coalition. So both left and right, uh, they are inclined to go to more and more extremes. So that's a big challenge for Macron. It will really come to a test. I guess we're, we're far away from it now, but obviously you can only run for these, uh, these two terms. So it'll be next time around, uh, it, depending on what you think, it, it's quite frightening what, what might produce itself then. Um, and um, Alistair, you and I are both in the UK. And you can't really ignore <laughs> what's been going on here. Oh, yes. Um, we have had within British politics a historic year. We have talked about it in previous podcasts, but today I want to just give you a very quick run through of what could be called the year of the three premiers, something that has, hasn't happened in Britain since 1834. And I'll get a little bit more into the kind of historical precedent. A lot of things that have happened this in this country this year, but a quick run through of all the events. So it starts off in kind of late 2021. Uh, sitting Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the time uh, has been found out. He's had a scandal. He was engaging a lot of kind of rambacious parties uh, within Westminster, a lot of drinking, a lot of booze, and obviously it was breaking COVID regulations at the time. This had generated a kind of general sense of displeasure with the government, a lot of anger towards the government, but it was stable within itself as it stood at the time. Uh, we get to May with the local elections and within England, uh, and especially within Wales, the Conservatives suffer a knockback um, at the hands of the Liberal Democrats, of the Labour Party and of the Green Party as well, who had their best results in those local elections, which again sends a lot of kind of displeasure within the Conservative Parliamentary Party. They're worried about their own electoral results. And then we get on to just after those local elections, there is a attempted vote of no confidence within the Conservative Party. Now, this wasn't within the Parliament. This wasn't within the House of Commons, but internally within the Conservative Party. And that is actually how uh, Margaret Thatcher was removed. She won the vote of no confidence, but she resigned because she knew she would lose the next one. So Boris manages to win that vote of no confidence, but it isn't over for him yet. There are two simultaneous by-elections, one in Tiverton and Honiton and one in Wakefield. Uh, Wakefield is a kind of marginal between Labour and the Conservatives. It's one of those red wall seats that the Conservatives picked up in the last election. Uh, very traditionally working class, quite post-industrial. Tiverton and Honiton, on the other hand, completely opposite. It is a true blue seat. It has been Conservative since about the 1830s, um, which is something that's not actually uncommon in the United Kingdom. And both these by-elections occur on the same day and the Conservative government loses both of them. Tiverton and Honson is won by the Liberal Democrats. It's the first time the Liberals had held the seat since the Liberal Democrats were a thing. And Wakefield is retaken by Labour. So that was, again, a major defeat for the government. But Boris Johnson's still able to hold his control. But then comes a real disaster for him, the Pincher affair. One of his own MPs is forced to uh, resign for his, from his role in the government, an uh, MP called Chris Pincher for sexual misconduct. And it is known that the uh, Boris Johnson had hired him after several of these allegations and complaints had been made within the Conservative Party to the chief whips within Parliament. And that sets off a cascade of ministers openly defying the government, saying this man's got to go, he's got to be removed from the Conservative Party, and ministers start resigning en masse from Boris Johnson's government um, over a course of about two days, which, to be frank, could have a podcast written about them in of themselves. Um we have this crisis where uh, Boris Johnson eventually has to resign as he can't actually fill ministerial roles from people that are left in the party. So Boris Johnson is gone. 
Now, that in of itself is a historic course of events that hasn't really occurred in British politics since the end of World War II. And then it happened again. Uh, Liz Truss is elected after about a month of a Tory Conservative election, uh, Tory Conservative leadership election, sorry. And then she passes her infamous mini-budget, a uh, lib- uh, kind of hyper-liberal economic budget based on radical tax cuts, radical spending cuts, and radical deregulation that causes a near-financial meltdown uh, that, according to the Bank of England, almost caused the collapse of several major pension funds within the United Kingdom. After this near-financial catastrophe, her second-in-command, her lieutenant, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, Kwasari Kwarteng, is removed. We don't know if he resigned or if he was fired. That's still up for debate. But he is removed and there's major questions about if she's going to reverse on this mini-budget that has caused such financial um, damage to the government. Um, and then there is a vote within Parliament on an opposition day where the Labour Party proposed a ban on fracking. It was a major contentious issue that this trust wants to bring up. And within that vote, there are reports of physical violence, physical force used to force various Conservative MPs to vote against the motion, um, which again ends up leading to a situation where you have mass resignations of ministers from the cabinet, which causes Liz Truss to resign, much in the way of her predecessor. This all co- occurred within the space of about 44 days, making Liz Truss's premiership the shortest again since 1834, when the Duke of Wellington was Prime Minister for three weeks because the guy that they wanted to be Prime Minister was in Italy doing something else. After this, Rishi Sunak is elected and he's currently the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. His government has been marked by, to be frank, inaction on a lot of issues. Um, he's been quite quiet because compared to his predecessors, but this entire series of crises have been unprecedented within British politics. Again, there hasn't been a year with three Prime Ministers in 200 years, and the last time it happened, it was only because one of the guy they wanted to be Prime Minister was in a different country, and in those days, obviously, no instant communication, they had to wait for him to return to the country. Um, it's hard to understate how drastic and monumental this is a shift within British political society, uh, one that is quite known for its long, stable periods of premiership. There is a general sense that kind of politics is not just being seen as out of touch, but also kind of coming apart at the seams, and how that continues on into this year of 2023. To be frank, we can't really predict, but I imagine it might be just as, as eventful as the year previous. And I guess for us... Um covering elections you obviously have a large amount of local elections coming up in may which again will be a, a sign of, of this divide and i guess this huge shift towards uh, labor which for so long we're we're um we're struggling and all had that nightmare election just a few years ago you know they're now 20 points or more ahead uh mm. in most polls so yeah it's, it's a huge change what Javid, what do you think as someone not in the UK watching this from (laughs) across? You know, for me at this point, any political discussion in the UK, regardless of the political ideology, should start with the imperative that the general election has to be called. Like at this point, I don't really see any other way out from this because I also don't see how Rishi Sunak government is going to bridge all these gaps within the government and within the British affairs, to say so. They definitely need a new deal at this point because that Brexiteer team uh, totally failed, in my view. Especially for me, the biggest concern is the the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, and the former Home Secretary, Priti Patel, 
and this entire Rwanda deal, and especially their appeals to leave the European Court of Human Rights, I believe it is... I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like this is somewhat unacceptable for a country like the United Kingdom. So the, the general election has to be called. It's not an unfair point, but um, one of the issues I think which has helped create this kind of omni-crisis we're seeing is that there is no political mechanism for an election like this to be called. Um, at the moment, uh, one of the things Boris Johnson very specifically did was repealed a piece of legislation called the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which allowed Parliament in with a two-thirds majority to call an election. Now, a governing majority is very unlikely to call an election when it thinks it's going to lose its majority, but now that Parliament, uh, now that power, sorry, has been reverted back to the Prime Minister. So the only person that has the power to call an election is the Prime Minister, and to be frank, they're quite unlikely to do so, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we're seeing this kind of crisis. Um, it's, you know, the political system is caught in a bind that it can't really solve through conventional means. So another country everyone's following very closely in um, 2022 was Hungary, Javed, and you've been thinking about that one in a bit more detail. Well, 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 we're coming to the biggest political disappointment of 2022 in uh, lots of beliefs. To, uh, so actually in Hungary, that, that's really interesting. Um, there were hopes initially, uh, especially after the 2019 municipal elections, and it was the emergence of numerous progressive movements like Dialogue, Parbeset, and Momentum Movement, and uh, the LMP, the Green Party, etc. Uh, especially like there were, like we see the emergence of new young political leaders, for example, Gergely Karacan, who's the current mayor of Budapest. Like we've seen some positive trends, like all this like multi-party coalition, uh, from the leftist movements, from the traditional left, like MSP, the Hungarian Socialist Party, to the traditional, like, center-right, even, like, the former, uh, dubbed as neo-Nazis, Jobbik Party, it became, like, it literally reinvented itself and became, like, a typical Christian Democratic Party. Like, they, that's exactly what Fidesz used to be, like, more than a decade ago. So there's been a lot of hopes, but we, at the same time, we see, uh, like, the Hungarian election was another lesson to the entire international community that uh, elections is not simply about putting a piece of paper in the ballot box. Election is elections, electoral process is actually a multidisciplinary institution that also entails the way the judiciary works or the way the campaigns are financed, the way media works in the country. And Hungary had huge issues with that, especially there were even some allegations that the Hungarian government used uh, the COVID data, uh, the COVID data on patients and citizens to send them uh, materials, like, like materials that promote Fidesz point of view and the, like calling for the appeals to vote for Fidesz. And as a result, despite the United Opposition's attempt to counterbalance Orban's candidacy, Orban's profile with another like um, 
a conservative, young, charismatic uh, leader in the face of Markizai Peter, who is uh, who is a mayor in one of the rural towns in southeast Hungary. Uh, even that did not work at the end. Uh, because Orban ended up winning, like getting a super majority, like 135 seats, more than two thirds. And we even have seen the, that another party that went into a parliament, and it's called Mihazan, like our homeland. That is also, um, a pretty, uh, it's like a patriotic party, like also really close to Fidesz views in a way. Uh, and yeah, I mean, in Hungary, another four years for Viktor Orban. Uh, let's see how that will go. Uh, and the prospects for the opposition are actually looking dire right now. So yeah, actually, it's a really brief and sad story in a way. And um, as a Swede, it's obviously having quite huge consequences with our um, current NATO application that's still not been um, approved by Hungary. And as you say, there's there's not time for us to go into it now, but there's the whole back and forth between Hungary and the European Union in terms of Fidesz's governing. So um, as you say, at least three or so more years of, of Orban. I think also the failure of the kind of united opposition, as it were, has... Um, both both kind of echoes and similar developments in similar kind of um, what are known as illiberal democracies um, in uh, the rest of the world. In Israel, for example, we saw the collapse of a similar kind of coalition that managed to win in government, but once in government had fallen apart. And as we've now seen, you know, Netanyahu, um, who they formed against to as a coalition, return to power. Uh, likewise, in Turkey, uh, there is going to be a similar situation this year um, with regards to though to that kind of um, electoral coalition against a sitting long-term um, elected leader with, you know, allegations of liberal actions, both in power and around elections. So will they be able to break the curse or is it going to be another example of, you know, these broad coalitions against a sitting figure failing in the face of the sitting figure? Um, Hungary is very much a kind of bellwether for how these kind of, you know, regimes operate. And to be frank, it's not sent a good signal to those that hoped that um, a lot broad electoral coalitions would be the answer to those kind of, you know, governments. You see, like, uh, there's also another, in both Hungary and Turkey, it all started with a big win in the, in the municipal elections. Then it continued with this broad coalition, and yeah, indeed. So let's like let's see what's gonna happen in Turkey, like in June or maybe even earlier. So uh, you know, as we're on to uh, Turkey already, um, why don't we move into our second section of the podcast, which is forward looking to twenty twenty three? There's lots going on. Um, and Javed, just uh, for a bit more context, I know lots of us will be looking with great interest at what goes on in Turkey uh, and and also in Greece. So what's the uh, what's the lowdown on that? 
Well, in fact, in Turkey, every day something is happening. So, uh, first of all, like it's, uh, we should note that, like a bit of the historical context. This year is actually what is a really important year for Turkey because it's the hundredth anniversary of the modern Turkish statehood, and it's a moment of fate in a way. Uh, most likely people will decide in these elections which way they want to go. Do they want to go back to the classical Kemalist order of Turkey, like division of Turkey? Or do they want to continue with this new, uh, a more like power projection based Erdogan Turkey in a way? Uh, so, Another significance of it is that, like, we have both presidential and parliamentary elections at the same time. In presidential elections, um, we obviously know that Recep Tayyip Erdogan is going to be a candidate, and there's going to be it is projected to have like a second candidate from the uh, for from the oppositional alliance, like that is like the alliance of six parties. It's CHP. The Ataturk's party, the Good Party, which was split from the nationalists, and a number of other smaller parties, and some of them were former politicians within AKP, like Erdogan's party, but gradually they split up and formed their own uh, political forces. So they have joined joined up their forces, and they it's called as the Nations Coalition. Uh, and the AKP coalition with the nationalists is called People's Coalition. And there is a third coalition led by the uh, leftist uh, pro-Kurdish party called HDP, uh, which, is, which also contains other progressive leftist forces. So uh, the interesting situation right now is that so this main opposition coalition consisting of six parties they still did not select their presidential candidate. And a lot of speculation is going on around that. Uh, some of them, f- from what we understand, uh, there are two possible candidates. So the chairman of E-Party, the leader of E-Party, Meral Akshanesh, she declined to be a candidate, as also the mayor of Ankara, Mansur Yavash. So two most likely candidates are Ekrem Imamoğlu, who's the mayor of Istanbul right now, and the leader of CHP party, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. What is interesting, very recently, uh, Ekrem Imamoğlu got uh, sentenced, got sentenced uh, because of uh, apparent like misconduct uh, during his electoral campaigning. Uh and today, I have read some news that AK, like the government is planning to double down on its persecution towards the municipality of Istanbul. Uh, so these are like really huge events, and we still don't know what the implications are going to be. Uh, all in all, from what we see that Erdogan's coalition uh, has a solid 40% right now, and he's going to fight for the rest 11% in a way, right? So uh, how successful is going to be, we still don't know. It depends on whether the opposition coalition will come up with a candidate in time. Or also there were like some uh, rumors lately that apparently the government will try to conduct the elections earlier 
like to organize the elections earlier, not in June 18th, but uh, in April, probably in April or even like March. Uh, because apparently uh, the AKP wants to take the advantage of the fact that there's still no oppositional presidential candidate. Uh, as for the parliament, in parliament, most likely AKP will not have a majority. And it already depends at the end of the day whether the oppositional uh, coalition and the HDP, the pro-Kurdish uh, party, will be able to negotiate between each other. Uh, the likelihood is not that high in a way. Um, and apart from that, uh, there's also like some sort of this, on the one hand, there's like this macroeconomic trends, which are not in favor of Turkey. But very recently, inflation dropped a bit. So that's also like in favor of Erdogan. He also, he also like, ended up having some success in curbing the inflation rates even slightly so maybe that is also one of the reasons why he wants to hold the elections earlier than before uh on the other hand there are also elections in the neighboring country in greece and so that is actually a really um, ironic moment because both countries are heading towards really crucial elections in Greece as well, most likely the status the status quo will remain the same. Uh, we see that the new democracy uh, with uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis most likely is going to be the leading party again, uh, with Syriza being the second. But also, let's not forget that PASOK also uh, got a heavy blow on its reputation with all this Eva Kaili scandal within the European Parliament. So for the left side of the spectrum, the situation is also, does not seem to be well in Greece as well. Uh, and apart from that, what we see, there's also another dimension, a common dimension in both of these elections, elections is that, uh, well, the situations, the bilateral relations between Greece and Turkey are not very well very recently, in recent years. Uh, so both Mitsotakis and Erdogan are uh, going to heavily use this rhetoric of uh, going towards escalation with the other side. So anyway, let's we'll just observe and see how uh, it already follows up. I don't, I don't know uh, enough about the intricacies in Turkey, but I do think it is probably, you know. It has the potential to be the most consequential race if against what I guess seems like the odds um, Erdogan gets replaced. But I think most people still assume that that's quite unlikely, as we discussed already with the recent experience of, you know, Orban in Hungary. You know, there is an incumbency effect there, and Erdogan obviously has this big, big machine and and control of. The institutions, and as you say, as always, if the coalition in opposition cannot get their um, their uh, stuff together, then that also talks against um, against the shift. So my prediction is just a weekend a weekend Erdogan. But I don't know what you think, Alster. See, I'm slightly more hopeful than you, Gabriel. Um, I don't normally cast myself as the optimist, but. Um, Within Turkey, the polling data shows that certainly within the 
Turkish parliament, the Grand National Assembly, that uh, the governing coalition with AKP and MHP are going to fall back quite drastically, possibly into a minority position. Um, I don't think that's certain, but I think that's highly likely. Um, I do also think the kind of the nature of the presidential election, as you said, the Istanbul governor, whose name I'm not going to pretend to pronounce, as you know, pronunciation of Turkish is not exactly my strong suit. Um, his arrest has kind of, you know, torn the uh, opposition coalition asunder with the HDP now uh, threatening to run their own candidate. Even then, from the polling, you know, we've kind of shown on Europe Alex that the CHP candidate has a decent chance of beating Erdogan in a fair runoff race, if that runoff race is fair, if it ends up being rerun for what ha- whatever reason. We can't predict that at the moment. You know, that's 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 in the court of Erdogan himself. Um, but regardless, I would, I would disagree. I think there's a decent chance he is removed from power, but the kind of the impacts of that, you're right, it's incredibly influential in Europe, um, with Sweden's ascension to NATO, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, Turkey's highly influential within that entire process. And currently, um, Erdogan is in the process of engaging in talks with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, how that, you know, the entire kind of fulcrum of Syria and Iraq are dependent a lot on Turkish foreign policy. So how that election shakes out will have massive impacts for the Middle East as a region as well. Speaking of Sweden, it's really nice that Alistair brought it up because the Swedish and Finnish accession to NATO actually is also became one of the campaigning points for Erdogan. Like he's going to heavily use this uh, leverage that yes, like see the entire Europe depends on me. So I'm the kingmaker. I'm the main decision maker. So like he's going to go with the rhetoric in this line, most likely. And he already does to some extent. I can definitely see that. And then Finland, which are uh, going to parliamentary elections as well in the same context, but from the other side of the wrangling, uh, and Estonia, its neighboring uh, country as well. So you have Greece and Turkey sort of a simultaneous uh, development going on with their campaigns. And then you have Estonia and Finland both going to the polls in the next um, three, four months. Obviously, both um, in the Baltic region, both bordering uh, Russia and Finland going through this consequential NATO ascension process, which obviously is massive. And um, I think in some other years, having Estonian and Finnish elections, they might have fallen lower down <laughs> on people's interest. But, you know, this time around, you do have sort of high-ish profile people leading the country. So you have in Estonia, you have Kaya Kalas, who's taken a big, big leadership role in the standoff against Russia in the last year. She's been one of the most aggressively vocal. She's done a big push internationally. Uh, and she'll be up for election. She's had a really chaotic time in the last few years. Um, she took over actually just two two years or so ago after a, a government collapse to become the country's first female PM. She's since led two different governments, uh, one in a coalition with another Liberal Party, which is the one that she's the head of. And since July last year, a wider coalition with the centre-left, the centre-right, uh, as well. And it's currently looking like the current coalition government in Estonia is not going to get a majority, is what it's looking like. But that Kaya might still get a chance of leading the next government, but it's not clear. And Estonian politics is quite unpredictable. That's going to be an interesting one to follow. And then even more high profile, obviously, is um, Sanna Marin, partly because of the NATO 
the NATO uh, bid that she's been uh, pulling through, uh, but also her infamous party incident, which uh, got attention all around the world. And she is a Labour politician, and she's been the Prime Minister of Finland since 2019. Um, And while she has uh, quite solid support for her leadership and her role as Prime Minister, her coalition as well, which is also a broad four-party coalition going from the centre to the more harder left, is also looking unstable. And uh, it'll be very interesting there to see uh, if she can manage to stick on. Obviously, it's a very sensitive time. This is happening in April, uh, around the time of, you know, this whole NATO process coming to really a big crunch, depending on what happens in Turkey, etc. So there could be a situation where her party becomes the second largest party in a minority coalition. And what is that? where does that leave her? Where does that leave the process? There might be a way of having a grand coalition that, so that she remains in place or maybe not. So that's another factor into this whole sort of uh, European-wide electoral politics influencing the response to the war that that can have um, big influence. Like it would be such a huge change if Erdogan gets ousted and then uh, Finland and Sweden both have new leaders a year on after this NATO process started. It's quite, you look back at it, I think, and it'll be quite um, quite crazy, the amount of change. I don't know if either of you follow Eastern Baltic <laughs> politics or how you viewed either Sana or Kaya in the last in the last year. I do find it quite surprising that um, Sana um, and Gaia have become celebrities throughout uh, a lot of Europe. Um, you know, uh, Sana's, you know, as you said, the infamous party incident, which, you know, I think she got an unfair rap for, um, made international news. That was headlines in America, of all places, and they never report on European politics, at least certainly not out of elect- outside of elections. Um, the fact that both of these people have become quite important uh, figures within European politics and European dialogue and, um, you know, the the increasing kind of globalization of party politics will kind of have an impact on their own domestic campaigns. We talked about Erdogan using his own foreign policy achievements and maybe, you know, influence, as you put it, Javid, um, to bring that back to the domestic sphere. I think both Kaya and Sana will also make ample use of that within their own domestic campaigns. For better or for worse, remains to be seen, but still. Uh, well, for me, I actually... I really like Sanna Marin for one reason, because she's one of the few millennial politicians that succeeded in a positive way, because I am actually... I observe, as a millennial myself, I observe uh, a lot of other politicians from our generation, and to say that I'm disappointed is to say nothing. Uh, <laughs> so far, our generations are a huge disappointment, but Sanna Marin actually did a great job, and I actually believe that like, regardless of what's going to happen in the Finnish political landscape, I believe she's actually uh, even made go... the. She, she even may up, upgrade herself to the European politics, you know, like maybe in the next European Commission in 2024. So for her, the, the, the way is long. And I think it's similar with Kaya Kalas in Estonia because she also already has a background in European politics. So uh, I don't yeah. think that if either of them lose their current jobs, that they'll, st- they'll still have a high profile. They'll certainly have a job in media, I'm sure of that. 
<laughs> I don't know. Probably, yeah, let's see. Um, and then finally, there will be things happening in Eastern Europe, Alastair, um, as well in terms of electoral politics. Obviously, there's other things usurping that in terms of importance. But you have you've you've looked into this for us. Oh, most certainly. Um, we've you know danced around the topic to a degree, talking about politics of various different countries. But naturally, the war in Ukraine is kind of pivotal to the entirety of both not just geopolitics and foreign policy, but also domestic politics within Europe. Uh, whether it's you know the direct issue itself, creating political fault lines, or the impacts of the war um, reshaping how uh, party politics works in different countries. Within Ukraine itself, uh, we are unlikely to see any electoral ongoings until the conflict has decidedly finished. That is not unusual for a society at war. Um, that is quite normal for a society at war, to be frank. Um, but we, what we have seen within polling data this year is that uh, the president Volodymyr Zelensky has retained uh, a high degree of public support, even higher than when he entered office, and he was quite popular when he entered office. Um, so this, you know, he's still considered both a very legitimate ruler um, by the Ukrainian people, but also uh, that he's competently carrying out this war um, in one way or another. Um, on the other side, we see much similar in Russia, to be frank, uh, the independent polling we can get out of Russia, which in of itself is still biased by societal issues. People who are more likely to be supportive of uh, the regime are more likely to engage in uh, political studies. That is something we've known in Russia for a long time. And, you know, why we kind of preface our polls at EuropeLex with that fact. Um, still, the polls show a high degree of support for uh, both Vladimir Putin and uh, various different elements of the regime um, that are currently running the country. Uh, there's a couple of new figures that have emerged as a result of this conflict. Uh, media figures like Solilev and uh, the governor of Belgorod Oblast, um, Glakov, who recently uh, appeared in a trust poll as a figure that Russian that Russians can name independently that they trust. Uh, within Russia, uh, in September, there will be its standard United Day of Voting, which regional elections and by-elections and other municipal elections occur. Um, the ones we saw proceed in the previous year were quite standard for how these kind of elections operate in Russia, despite mobilisation and the kind of move towards a war economy and the general restrictions and freedom of speech uh, that exist within Russia as a heightened state of the war itself. Uh, within Belarus, there are expected to be national parliament elections, which are, um, you know, not considered competitive or free in any sort, um, even before, long before this conflict. However, um, the last referendum in Belarus was a focal point for both anti-war activism and anti-Lukashenko activism by the opposition, who organised both a boycott and a protest on the day of the referendum, uh, trying to recapture the kind of spirit that was occurring in the summer of 2020. If they are able to do this again with these national elections, or otherwise impact the state of the dictatorship in that country, remains to be seen. But um, things are not as stagnant as they appear. I think, you know, maybe when we run this episode this time next year, um, the section I will have on Ukraine, Russia and Belarus will be vastly different from what we're seeing right now. We are really kind of in the flux of history with regards to these three countries and, you know, the future 
is is a complete fog. We have no idea what's going to happen. Things might be a stalemate a year from now, or the entirety of the borders of Eastern Europe might be redrawn with new regimes rising and falling within the year. I cannot predict that. I will not attempt <laughs> to predict that. In terms of Russia and Ukraine, what do we? What's actually been said about elections? There are the dates, and there's obviously the the, the rolling calendars. But can we even expect anything? to go ahead given the war that's a that's a decent question to be frank with regards to russia we had the same concerns about whether they would have their united day of voting this uh, in 2022 and it occurred without much difference from uh, the previous year one of the main things about the home front in russia during this conflict has been an attempt to maintain absolute normalcy um it's you know this the quote unquote special military operation isn't meant to affect people at home. It's something that's happening over there. It's a colonial conflict almost, um, which is why every time the war is brought home to Russia, it has been incredibly kind of you know both damaging for the legitimacy of the Putin regime, but also kind of quite impactful within Russian news. Um, so I think they will try their best to maintain a sense of normalcy to carry out these elections, as fraudulent as they are in a standard fashion. But if events force them not to, again, I'm not going to try and predict anything of that nature, but I have a feeling there might be something that would cause them not to occur. Uh, if, if, I'll add up, if I'll add up some on what Alistair have said, uh, would we see some profound changes in politics in Russia right now? And I believe that may be one of the key developments because... In Russia, uh, usually the Putin's Russia was a monolithic hierarchical system, but right now this is rapidly changing because we see the emergence of numerous uh, non-state paramilitary actors who are increasingly critical of the Russian establishment, and we have no idea whatsoever what's gonna like what's gonna come out of this because I for. In political science, the first definition of the, of a failed state is when the state loses its capability of the monopoly of violence, monopoly on violence. So what we see right now in Russia is that Russia is starting to lose that with all these private military companies like Wagner groups, etc., etc., etc. So these are important developments to observe over the over the 2023 i i i have to agree with that um the development of not just wagner group uh but various regional governors have been forming uh private militias you have the kaderovtsi of chechnya uh, under kaderov and <clears throat> you're right it kind of does harken back to previous periods in Russian history. Um, the 1990s was especially a period where one could describe Russia as a failed state, where you had elements of the mafia exercising the monopoly of violence, sometimes on behalf of the state, um, not even necessarily in opposition to it. Um, and also, you know, during the last couple of wars, Russia fought like this, uh, 1905 and 1917, obviously. These kind of, you know, anti-state militias, whether they were necessarily in supporting of the kind of ruler or against the ruler, um, challenging the kind of monopoly on violence of the state. Eventually, well, we all saw how 1917 turned out. Um, and, you know, to kind of compare Wagner to the Black, uh, the Black Hundreds for a second, it might just be a case of history repeating itself.
And now on to our usual polling highlights segment. And you might think that um, the Christmas and holiday period in most of Europe in early January might be a, a dull time for politics and people's opinions, but that would mean that you're mistaken. So I'm going to start with uh, Denmark, where a Vox Major poll has showed the Liberal Alliance reaching 11.4%, which is its highest ever polling result. Uh, the, Denmark's also seen Socialistisk Folkeparti reach 10.6%, which is also a record high for them, or at least for, for 10 plus years. And Radikale Venstre, uh, on its end, uh, seeing a record low of 3.2%, which is the lowest that it's been since 2009. So you're seeing support shift, I guess, on both uh, the liberal flank of politics and then socialist to far left side, where also the Socialistisk Folkeparti are going up to 11%. So lots of change in Denmark uh, just very soon after their parliamentary elections. And going further down south, there have been movement as well, Alistair. Indeed, in Montenegro, the centrist pro-European party Evropa Sad reached a record high of 15.2% in a CDEM poll. This would make the newly formed Europe Now movement the second largest party in all of the parliament if repeated in an election. The liberal Ciudadanos in Spain fell to an at least nine-year record low, with 0.3% in a simple Logica poll. Obviously, if repeated in an election, it would be the party's worst result since 2015, when it gained representation in the national parliament. And to head over to Iceland, the centre-left uh, Sam Filkting uh, party, the Social Democratic Alliance, reached an all-time record high of 23.4% in a Gallup poll. The party received only 9.9% back in September of 2021, you know, kind of showing a great leap from its last election result. In Italy, the centre-left Democratic Party fell to an all-time record low with 14% in SWG poll. If repeated in an election, this would be the party's worst result ever since its foundation in 2007. I still cannot believe the Ciudadanos <laughs> result. It might as well be 0%. Indeed, but I, I have I have seen an amazing analysis on Ciudadanos by our fellow Europe-elect team member, Nas on Twitter, so you can check his thread. He actually, yeah, I really liked the way he put it, like his analysis was really up to the point. In, indeed, indeed. He's, he's, uh, we at Europe Alex, you know, we constantly talk to each other about ongoings in our own countries and in different countries, and uh, we're constantly, you know, kind of conveying these information to each other. Um, so I would really recommend his work, indeed. And um, that wraps up this uh, this episode of news and highlights from around the continent so thank you everyone for listening uh thank you alistair and david uh for uh taking the time of sharing all this insight and uh discussing these topics with me so i'll um see you all next time bye bye see you bye bye Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by Gabriel Henrigan, Alastair Warner, and Javid Ibad. The managing editor was Polycarus Kamarpelas. The script was written by our hosts on our writing team, Ewan Healy, Matthew Nicholson, Ygrius Kakuruis, Guilhem Feria, Resende, Yanis Ashrakan, and Tijani Salah. The audio engineer and editor was Polychronus. The music was written by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons on Patreon.